we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. This, uh, this is part 49 in the book of Hebrews. We're at Hebrews chapter 11. We'll finish chapter 11. The, the title of today's teaching is Same Faith, Different Blessings. Learning the wisdom of God through all of life. Same faith, different blessings, learning the wisdom of God through all of life. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets... Who through faith, now listen to this list, conquered kingdoms, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and and obtained promises. I'll tell you why I want you to remember that phrase. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Some women received back their dead by resurrection. Then you put a line. Listen to the next list. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. What does it feel like to be sawn in two? They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, Afflicted, mistreated. That's quite a list, isn't it? They didn't deserve any of this. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, all these, The all these is not just this last part of the list, but the whole list right from verse 32. In other words, all those who were so blessed in the first part of the list and those who were so tortured in the second part of the list, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And now you see why I asked you to remember that phrase in verse 33. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promise. Okay? Now, 39, all these, though commended through the faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. Better for us. And then this strange ending that apart from us, that's us right here, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's that mean? Let's pray. We're learning more and more to love the depth of your word. That all the truth of your word doesn't just lie loose on the surface. It's to be desired like gold. 
gold in that day didn't come out of a vault. It was dug out of the earth. And so help us, Lord, by your Spirit to find precious nuggets of truth that make our lives different, that are, that are seeds of your Holy Spirit to grow things in our hearts that make us more like Jesus. We love you today. If we haven't already told you, our hearts are full of love for you, Lord. That's your prayer. Stick the amen on the end. This text matters because it trains readers, like us, to to not make an absolute system of the effects of faith in those who exercise it. And unless you've lived under a rock for the last 50 years or so, that's what exactly what much of the church has tended to do in, in publications, in broadcasts, in conferences, in word faith churches. Untold fortunes have been amassed by people who sell the idea that if faith is exercised in just the right way, a divine law of predictable good results must follow. The result of this is faith is measured not by its endurance or even by its object, but by its immediate results. Enough faith guarantees certain results. Weak faith or lacking faith will be manifested in continued sickness or poverty or a host of other evils. And I want to I be clear. We should exercise faith. There are precious promises in God's word. And those promises are there to encourage prayer and hope and trust. God is good and God is responsive and God loves to reveal himself faithful in blessing his people. We are a church that believes in healing and the gifts of the Spirit and pray one for another that you might be healed. We do that. You'll get no argument from me. We've seen God work. We should ask, we should seek, and we should knock. And everyone said, absolutely. The problem is the construction of an airtight system. The problem is the mistaken system that contradicts a lot of the data of Scripture. And that's that's the importance of a text like this. Off we go. Point number one. I changed the wording of this so you'll see it a little bit different. That's not their fault. It's my fault. I just did it this morning. It's similar. Faith calculates on the promise of God rather than the odds of success that appear stacked against it. Let me say it again. Faith calculates on the promise of God rather than the odds of success that appear stacked against it. I get that out of 32 to 35 of our text. What more shall I say? For for time would fail me to tell of Gideon 
Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. So you, you, think of, you think of Daniel, don't you, in the lion's den. Quenched the power of the fire. You think of their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Like, just try and think about it. You've lost a child. The child died. And right here in this life, the child is raised from the dead. I would submit to you that's a pretty happy moment. Wouldn't you? Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Now, here's my concern. Just before we jump into analyzing those verses, I think we should pause to remember, back up the bus. There's something our writer assumes in writing those words. What he's trying to do, I've said this just about every Sunday, he's trying to encourage this group of Hebrew, that's the name of the letter, letter to the Hebrews, these Hebrew believers, Jewish believers who have followed Christ and are now being persecuted. We know that from Hebrews chapter 10, it says so. They've been imprisoned, they've taken out of their home, their families won't speak to them, they've lost all their friends, and they're being tempted to come back under Judaism and to reject Christ as the Messiah. And so our writer's trying to help them. He's trying to encourage the same faith in his readers as they face persecution for their departure from Judaism in becoming disciples of Christ. He, he wants his account of the faith of these names. He wants that to feed faith in his readers. But, but look at the way he lists these names. You can see it in verse 32, just as an example. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Here's what strikes me. No details are given. He doesn't actually say anything about any of those people. I mean, he did earlier in the chapter, but not these ones. It's just a list of names. And there's no food for our writer's reader's faith. There's no food for their faith at all unless his readers have already learned the details of those names. Let me try and say it this way. Our writers, persecuted readers, they're being queued up to fill in the details behind those names. Or they won't build their faith at all. Just a list of names. And, and, and what you're witnessing is the reason so many Christians find the life of faith a struggle all their days. They don't know the stories of faith in God's word. Are, are you seeing my point? If you say the word Jephthah, it doesn't help them at all because they don't know the story of Jephthah and his vow. If you say the name Gideon, it doesn't help them at all because they've never taken the time to learn what happened with Gideon anyway. Why is his faith important? 
They don't know the stories of faith. It is happening en masse in the church of Jesus Christ. They don't go to Christian ed. They're not in church Sunday night. They never attend a small group on Wednesdays. Wednesday, they, they struggle to find 15 minutes to read their Bible. Oh, they're informed about the Leafs and the Raptors and the TSX. But no beans about the history of the Old Testament. They're going to struggle all their Christian walk. And everyone said, that was pretty weak. You want to say amen, Pastor Don, then say something that picks on other people, not us. And then, and then the whining will start. It's just so hard to be a Christian in today's world. So many people oppose. They misunderstand my commitment to Jesus. What's the use in following Jesus? It's hard. And all the while, they've ignored what our writer assumes in today's text. Faith comes by hearing, finish it, and hearing by the word of God. Notice that word hearing. Hearing. Every once in a while, someone will come and they'll say, do do you have those things? I I have a hearing problem. And when, Pastor John, when you're talking, it's all just jumbled up. I can't make sense of it. It doesn't reach me. I I don't hear it. Hearing. Faith comes by Hearing. Hearing by the word of God. It's the stories of these people. That's how you build faith. It, it, means, it means nothing else will sound right in the Christian life. It, it means nothing will make sense in the Christian life. It means nothing of God's word will register the way God would like it to register in my soul unless, unless I am crammed full, brain-packed, to the brim with the accounts of God's word. Now back to our first point. I said, here's what he assumes when he gives that list. That's what I was just talking about. Now the point. Faith calculates on the promise of God even when the visible odds of success are stacked against it. You'd have to know these stories to pull faith food out of this text. Gideon. Gideon is stunned at the power of God as this cowardly leader heads up a crushing defeat of Midianite invaders. What's special about his victory is he does it after God reduces his 30,000 men army to 300. Barak leads Israel against the massive Canaanite army with its seemingly insurmountable, the text says, 900 chariots of iron, threatening Israel's annihilation. Samson, one single man, oh, he had his weaknesses. He was mightily, the text says, anointed by the Spirit of God to devastate the military might of the Philistines. One man. What about David? No more than, a, more than a boy. He can't even carry Saul's armor. And he walks boldly out against Goliath with these words. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defiled. And no one in that crowd would have put money on David. And he takes Goliath's head off. Read the text. He carries it around. 
What's our writer's point in this ancient history? Well, he has an audience. He has an audience reading his letter, and, and they're discouraged. They're, they're right on the edge, questioning their decision to become disciples of Christ. They're not just a little down the way we all get a little down. They're threatened. They're kicked from their homes. They have lost all the friends that they used to have. They've been disowned by their mother, their father, their brother, their sister. They've been falsely accused on trumped-up charges and thrown into prison. By the way, I get that, just in case you're wondering. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured, endured a, a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully, joyfully accepted the, there's a word, plundering. So there's no legal right to their property. It's just been plundered, taken. Can't afford a lawyer. You're just out on the street. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, we'll talk more about that. Now, bring all these verses home. What, what, what are the things? What are the things marching against your life? What are the things your faith calls you to deal with that seem vastly bigger than any of your resources to cope with them? What, what has you doubting your own ability to keep going much longer with the way things are? That's what this list of individuals in today's text is all about. All of the terrible things that happened to them weren't caused by a lack of faith. All the terrible things that happened to them were caused by their faith. All their troubles were, were designed to test their faith, purify their faith, exercise their faith, strengthen their faith. Do you know their stories? Do you? Do you read them over and over until you have them almost memorized? Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. They're there to remind you that faith never calculates on the consistent removal of every external trial and trouble. Many times, faith is demonstrated right in the middle of those things rather than through the removal of those things. There's something else even more important. Point number two. Past failure doesn't disqualify me from reaching out in expectant faith for present need. So the emphasis is on past failure, present need. Past failure doesn't disqualify me from reaching out in expectant faith for present need. Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 35. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of... He sounds like a preacher, doesn't he? To tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson... Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Think of, think of Gideon. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. We need to remember that these... I, I underlined the names. These were highly blemished individuals. It's easy to forget that. Gideon. Gideon did defeat the Midianites with that vastly reduced army. And when he did, he fashioned a golden ephod, an instrument of worship. And he set it up in his own city of Ophrah, contrary to the law of God. And the text text tells us what God thought of that. It's in Judges 8.27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel... We don't even use this word, do we? When I did that in this sermon, the spell checker came on and didn't even recognize it. Little red line. All Israel whored after it there. And you get the the idea of committing adultery, don't you? Of unfaithfulness to God. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Jephthah. He's most famous not for his defeat of the Ammonites, but for this wicked, rash vow that he made to the Lord as he bargained for victory instead of just accepting it on God's terms. You can read about that. It's in Judges chapter 11. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you'll give me the Ammonites into my hand, God never asked him to do this. Then whatever comes out from the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Let me just change slides. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel Kirmim, and with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came home to his house in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dance. She was his only child. That's what Jephthah's famous for. His rash, wicked impulsiveness. Samson disobeyed the clear command of the Lord by marrying a woman from the Philistines. Samson frequented the company of prostitutes. David committed adultery with Bathsheba while her husband was on the battlefield defending David's kingdom. And then David arranged to have her husband killed. More could be said. I won't wear you out with details. But I think the point stands. The saints... Walk of faith is highly tainted. Our reach of faith is always a sinner's reach. Our confession of faith, our confession of faith will always feel hypocritical in some measure when we're inwardly honest. That's where faith has to be exercised. That's what makes faith in Jesus necessary in the first place. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's what makes this list of faith examples such a breath of fresh air. There's no pretending here. We get the whole story of the biblical text. And from it we learn that the weak and the failing church, the weak and the failing can repent their way back to the pathway of faith. If that weren't so, I'd quit and never come into this place again. The weak and failing can trust in a mighty God. They can trust in a gracious, pardoning Christ. We, we learn Christ's work on our behalf is linked directly to his mercy and not my merit. Here's the point. This is not only true of his work in us, saving us. This is also true of his work through us as we exercise faith. He has no one to work with but weak, sinful people. Point number three. There's a victory in faith even when there's no deliverance from the cost of faith. So victory and cost. There's a victory in faith even when there's no deliverance from the cost of faith. Hebrews 11, 35 to 40. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Refusing, that's interesting, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And he's comparing that with that, the temporary resurrection. 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. It's not just Old Testament, by the way. Look at the Apostle Paul. Stephen. They kill him. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, so it's not that they didn't have faith. They were commended about their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. And and what we're meant to see is this, this separation of their faith, which they had, and not receiving the promise, which they didn't. But it wasn't because of lack of faith. Why? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I have three thoughts that I want to draw out of here and we'll start to wrap up. Our writer tries to encourage these persecuted Hebrew disciples. Okay? He wants to encourage them to stay faithful, to stay on track, to follow Christ. And and surprisingly, the way he does it is, he chooses not to hide from them the kind of suffering many of the faithful have experienced in the past. See, that's not what I would have done. 
If I was trying to encourage these people to stay with it, I would have just told them about Daniel and the lion's den. I would have just told them about the walls falling around Jericho. I would have told them about David and Goliath. But I wouldn't have said, and by the way, a lot of them were sawn in half, and a lot of them lost their homes and the plundering of their property, and they were slandered, and they were persecuted. Why does he do that? Well, because there may come times when we all relate to the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho falling. There are going to come many other times when my faith in Christ will bring more difficulties than it will remove, and I need to know that up front. And by the way, whatever church you're in, this church or any other, if no one's ever told you that, please get it now. Jesus did not come to die on the cross to make your life easy. I have a book, and inside on the title it it says, God loves you and has an extremely difficult plan for your life. That we live in an environment that doesn't appreciate commitment to Christ. That there will be persecution. That you are going against the grain. There's precious joy and there's wonderful blessing. I'm not diminishing any of that. But our writer chooses to tell to tell these people struggling with their faith of the difficulties that many other experience so that they won't think, you know what they're going to start to think? Boy, I must not be a person of faith. I must not have enough faith. There's enough people that are going to tell you that in every problem you face. You just don't have enough faith. And you need to know. You need to be able to say, oh yeah? What about Barak? What about Gideon? What about Jephthah? What about David? You need to do that. You can't miss this in the New Testament. It's on pretty good authority. Here's Jesus. Whenever Jesus says something, you can usually take it to the bank. Have you found that to be true? If the world hates you, you should be stunned. Oh, wait a minute. If the world hates you, no... That it has hated me before it hated you. What, that, what Jesus is saying is, it hated me. So the more you are like me, what do you think is going to happen to you? This is not rocket science. They hated me. Your goal is to be like me. Therefore, do the logic. That's what Jesus is doing here. If you were of the world... Well, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world... There's the clear statement. Therefore, that's a conclusion. The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Look at Peter. Peter must have listened very carefully to Jesus. Beloved. So we know he's writing to Christians. Here's what he doesn't want. Here's a response that he doesn't want to see in any Christian. Surprised. (laughs) 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. So that's the first thing. Our writer tries to encourage these persecuted Hebrew disciples. And as he does it, he chooses not to hide from them the kind of suffering many of the faithful have experienced in the past. B, there's a better life ahead than just escaping physical torture and death. And faithful disciples need to think about that better resurrection. I get that in Hebrews 11.35. It's a wonderful verse. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. So that's past tense. That's received, E-D. So that's these women. Now there's other women. Some, he seems to make that comparison, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again. So you see what he's doing? There's a resurrection Here's a resurrection. So what he's doing is he's comparing two resurrections, right? That they might rise again to a better life. This verse is a, it's a study in contrasts. Some women, as a result of their trusting in the Lord, received their loved ones. Children, received them back from the grave. And, and what, a, what a celebration of joy there must have been. All the sandwiches and crackers and cookies never got eaten because the dead came back to life. Can you imagine that? But there are other women in the same verse. Same verse. These women were offered a chance to find relief from their torture and pain. And all they had to do was renounce their faith. And, says our writer, their torture continued right into the grave, right into the loss of life, because they wouldn't accept the terms of comfort. Same verse, same faith, same people, different results. Some have their children brought back to life. Some are executed because they wouldn't accept terms of release. And then our writer does something really forceful and powerful. He deliberately compares the kind of resurrection this first group of women received with their deceased loved ones. Compares that with the kind of resurrection these tortured, faithful unto death women received when Jesus comes again. And, says our writer... This one's better. See it? This one's better. It's better to stay with Jesus. They get a life even better. The life to come because they will never die again. Unlike that temporary reunion with the first group of women and their loved ones who would die again. And our writer's point is not just, well, let's clever speculation. Our writer's point is, faithful disciples think about the better life to come a lot. They think and plan and aim at that life, right in the middle of trials and persecution and suffering that doesn't go away at all. 
What takes them through it is they're looking at, oh, there's a better life. There's something better than release from this situation. There's a, there's a permanent, resurrected, new creation coming. And that's what my faith is focused on. That's, that's, I've got an anchor there, and I'm just pulling against it now in that direction. By the way, Hebrews uses that term, an anchor for the soul. See, and this is the last point. None of these examples of faith receive God's ultimate promised blessing. And that is for our good, the text says. Now certainly some of them received some of what God promised. Moses received deliverance from Egypt. Joshua saw the walls of Jericho fall. Rahab was spared. So yes, God was faithful in giving specific promises to these people of faith. But our text is pretty emphatic. In a much deeper sense, none of these people received the promised future blessing of God. You can see it in a couple of places. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all, so he's not talking about a couple of them. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Acknowledged that there were strangers, exiles on the earth. You can see it again in Hebrews eleven thirty nine. Same idea. All of these, not talking about some of them. All of these, though commended through their faith, they had great faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Did not receive what was promised. How can it be true? How can it be true that people like Abraham and Moses and Joshua, who saw such great results to their faith, how can it be true that they didn't receive God's promise? How can that be true? What about the specific answers that came from God? And the answer to that question is the same for them as for you and for me. God has something better than anything we can possess in this world. There is the promise of a perfect new creation. A new heaven, new earth. A new creation in Jesus Christ. And God had all those old covenant saints wait They died not receiving the promise in 14 through 16. They're looking for a homeland. They're looking for another city whose designer and builder is God. They were looking for that. Why does God make them wait? And they had to wait for the same reason you and I still wait for that promise. And the reason is he wants to have more and more come to repentance and faith. He doesn't want to have Moses made new creation perfect, apart from Don Horbin being made new creation perfect. And he doesn't want you and I being made new creation perfect, apart from our neighbors being made new creation perfect. And the church in Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and Syria, where Christians suffer such persecution, he doesn't want 
to finish everything off without them being made new creation perfect. This ending really shouldn't surprise us. If you went back almost a year ago, our writer clued us in right at the start of this letter on the still-to-be-completed plan of Father God. Here's where he introduced it. It's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. We're not starting again. Don't panic. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Who's this? That's Jesus. Whom he has appointed the heir of all things. You know what an heir is? The, the inheritance, the end result, everything at the conclusion goes to. But then he says, through whom also he created the world. And he goes way back to the beginning. Why? Why does he do that? Well, since the creation of this world, since then, God has been planning his new creation. There was always a divine promise that reached forward into a brand new era. It was always God's promise and plan to have this new creation brought about through Jesus Christ. Because he was the one through whom the first creation happened. He's going to be the heir of all things and he will be the one where that heavenly city, the city of God, the permanent new creation reality will be established and fulfilled. It'll only be through him. The point being that just as Christ was the agent of this present physical creation through whom he created the world, the point surely is this, that the coming new creation is just as certain just as tangible, just as real as this present visible order. So we rest, our hope is in an unstoppable coming kingdom and a new creation. Everyone said?